It is a very significant day. We have team coverage throughout the day. Kristen Holmes is at Mar-a-Lago. Let's start things off with Caitlin Polance and Washington. Caitlin, when it comes to what we're going to be listening to today, what are the key points and how big of a test is this for Chief Justice John Roberts? Well, this is one of those days and one of those cases that will define the Roberts court going forward. It's not just John Roberts, though, up there with the other justices asking questions today. They all will be grappling with the history of the 14th Amendment, how it came to be after the Civil War, an insurrectionist ban saying that people would not could be ineligible to be voted for or on ballots if they took part in insurrection. They also will be looking at the future, the future of the presidency and that office, how to define that office. And they'll be looking at the Constitution, of course, what it says about the presidency. But if you step back for a second, Phil and Poppy, there's a big question here that both sides have to tackle. Can states do this? Can Colorado make the decision within themselves by their Supreme Court? And can other states do similar things to take a candidate off the ballot? In this case, Donald Trump on the 2024 primary ballot in Colorado. Trump's attorneys say if states can do this, it'll unleash chaos and bedlam across the country. There are others, voters from Colorado, as well as the Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold in Colorado, who will be arguing that, yes, Colorado can do this. They can apply the law in in this way if they choose. There have been lots of people who have popped up in the court already to submit their portions of the arguments, uh, what are called am amici briefs. And in those briefs, there are people like other states saying, please, Supreme Court, clarify this somehow so that we all know what to do across the country. This isn't just about Colorado. But as we watch the justices today, they're going to be looking at these really big questions. One person up there, Katanji Brown-Jackson, she previously has had to deal with January 6 rioters when she was on a much lower court. And one thing that she was saying at the time was that if there was a more serious offense in terms of who we are as a society and the democratic order that is at the core of our constitutional scheme, I don't know what is. That is her commentary on the insurrection of January 6. I'll be watching closely to see if the justices go closely uh, to that idea of insurrection and if Donald Trump can apply uh, or be called an insurrectionist in this case. That's a really uh, interesting point about, you know, what she said in the previous cases. Kristen, to you, I think we just learned that Trump's going to speak today from Mar-a-Lago. Is that right? He won't be at the Supreme Court, but what's your reporting on what he will say today? Good morning, Poppy and Phil. Well, we're not sure what he's going to say, but we are sure that he is going to make some kind of remarks from Mar-a-Lago, and of course, we'll be covering that. Now, this is a marked difference from what we have seen in several of his other civil cases. He has been up in New York for the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, as well as for that New York civil fraud case. He is actively not attending the Supreme Court case, and I'm told by advisors that this is intentional, that Donald Trump knows how high the stakes are. I'm also told by some advisors that there were some people who didn't believe that Donald Trump's outbursts in court, his storming out of the court, were helpful to him in either of those cases. But all in all, it is clear that the legal team is taking a different approach to this. They were in moot court for two days, practicing their, their remarks. We also know uh, that they were in constant touch with the former president, going back and forth. And it wasn't a formal decision until yesterday evening that Donald Trump was definitely not going to come. But they have all agreed, again, that it was better for him not to be in the room and not for that 
strange dynamic as well. I mean, he'd be looking up at a bench of which he appointed one third of the justices sitting there. The other thing to note is that this is still the juggling act we are seeing between the politics and the legal, because after he delivers remarks, he's getting on a plane and going to Nevada, where he is expected to win the caucuses there. So again, all of this juxtaposition, all of this coming together at once, but I would say the one takeaway here is that it is clear they are trying a different approach to these Supreme Court arguments to the highest court in the land. Yeah, it's going to be so fascinating. Uh, Kristen, Caitlin, thank you both. We'll see you throughout the day during our special coverage. Now this, Trump's attorneys have argued that removing his name from the state ballot would, quote, disenfranchise millions of Americans. But listen to what one of the opposing attorneys who will be at the court today told our friend and colleague, Aaron Burnett. Listen. This is the furthest thing from anti-democratic. Uh, last time President Trump was on the ballot, he ignored the will of 80 million U.S. voters and summoned a mob to attack the Capitol during the peaceful, otherwise peaceful transition of presidential power. Uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is one of the few self-defense mechanisms that the Constitution has to ensure that our democracy uh, remains viable. Joining us now is Trump's defense lawyer during the second impeachment trial, David Schoen. He's also C. Bannon's attorney. I really appreciate you being here. I should also just note as a point of fact, you've, you've been arguing cases like this for a long time, not exactly the same, but about access to being on the ballot. You've also at one point represented the National Democratic Party. I'm glad you're here this morning. You say you can guarantee Trump prevails. Why? <laughs> well, uh... Trump will prevail in the case. I mean, if if uh, civil libertarians have their way, in my view, every civil civil libertarian ought to support his position. It's a matter of process. There are fascinating arguments. Caitlin mentioned them earlier. Uh, textual arguments about whether it applies to president or vice president, since they're not named. Whether a president's an officer. There's an 1888 case, 2010 case, suggests they're not. Um, those kinds of arguments are interesting. But to me, the 14th Amendment itself requires that it be overturned, matter of due process. The 14th Amendment incorporates the Fifth and Sixth Amendment uh, principles. So, for example here, either this, either Section 3 is self-executing or it isn't. We have this Griffin's case from 1869 mm -hmm. that says it isn't, that there requires federal legislation in order to apply this section. Whether that's required or not, um, he was being, this is a, using this section to circumvent his civil rights is inappropriate. What I mean by that is this. We have a federal statute, insurrection, 18 U.S.C. 2383. They had every opportunity to charge him with that. They never did. Yeah. They never even presented to a grand jury because they couldn't make out probable cause. If they had, he'd have all of the Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights available, so right to jury trial, a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, all of those rights. He doesn't have those with just a made-up process here. Um, and then who decides? Is it just a, a non-lawyer in Maine, Secretary of State? Is it a judge in Colorado? That's a matter of due process to get notice of what the charges are, what the mens rea is, all of those things. So I say as a matter of process, it's an easy case, and every civil, civil libertarian ought to hope that the Colorado decision is overturned. A couple of things, David, and I, I find this a fascinating argument as well. When you talk about enforcement, there's Section 5, obviously, uh, and we're going to see how that plays out, that Congress is the one that has the power to enforce. That would be against the argument uh, of self-execution. But the other thing that is really interesting to me is this, the, the Colorado Supreme Court 
had a finding of law, but then they had a finding of fact. And their finding of fact was, indeed, he did engage in an insurrection. Do you think the Supreme Court takes up that argument at all, that this was or wasn't engaging in an insurrection, or do they bypass that? Very interesting question, a great question, as all of yours always are. Um, I think, first of all, what troubles me most, I think, in the Colorado decision about its finding of fact is that it relied on the January 6th committee report. I, I feel very strongly that committee is a partisan committee that was ethically checkered in the first place. But again, who makes the finding of fact and under what standard?